Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Taisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, at this time of year, basically my own podcast listening goes through the roof. And in fact, listening to this podcast goes through the roof. So I'm putting out a couple of different episodes. Um, One is a truly brilliant discussion about how simple decisions can transform workplace culture. And that's a conversation with Zeynep Tan. And the second really is not properly about workplace culture, but just... As it's sort of end of year, it's a brilliant reflection on the way we're working. A couple of years ago, I loved Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror, which is a sparklingly intelligent reflection on the way the internet is evolving. And along the same lines is a brand new book by Emma Gannon. Now, you might know Emma Gannon. She's an increasingly accomplished creator in in multiple fields. She's a novelist. She's a nonfiction writer. She's an incredibly successful podcaster. I think... She's had in excess of 10 million listens to her podcasts and she's written a new book which comes at the time, I think, the turn of the year where a lot of us are reflecting on our relationship with our phone. Do we want to change the way that maybe we spend a lot of our time on our phone? Emma's written this new book which is just available now on pre-order but it's coming out next year, early next year called Disconnected which really invites us to reflect on firstly how the devices in our hands have changed but also whether our relationship could be adapted and and renegotiated in another way. Along the way across all of her different things she's demonstrated that she's always a voice that needs to be listened to and so for me if you've got a long drive somewhere or if you're preparing food or whatever I just thought I'd put another podcast out that might be a stimulating provocation for you so this is a discussion with Emma Gannon, who's the author of the forthcoming book, Disconnected. Emma, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm so grateful to have you here. Now, you say in your book, you say that this challenge of people introducing themselves and having a constraint of how they introduce themselves is like an unfair mental model. However, I'd love you to introduce who you are and, and the role you play in the world. Thank you. Yes, I do dread this question, but I think everyone does when you do few different things but I'm a writer primarily storyteller I make a podcast but on the book side I write non-fiction so I'm on my fourth book the non-fiction now which is very exciting and I'm a debut novelist and I'm working on my second novel yeah I basically am a writer and podcaster so interesting though isn't it because in the spirit of you know you've written this this book here which I think more than anything invites us to maybe rethink 
It's, in fact, in many ways, it's like, it's, it's probably not 10 years on, but it's a refreshed perspective of the first book you wrote, Control, Alt, Delete, which was like the perspective of growing up online. And this, to me, feels like reflections a few years on of what you've learned from that online life. Of all the things you're most well known for is, is your podcast, you know, or in the first instance, your podcast, which, as I can see, a fairly accidental decision, wasn't it? Is, yes. is that right? Yeah, it was. I had seen it was a trend over in the US. Elizabeth Gilbert, Brené Brown, those sorts of amazing women in the nonfiction space over there, they started doing podcasts to promote the books as a marketing tool and they do like eight episodes or whatever and then move on. And the podcast just lived as a sort of side project to the book. And so I yeah, plan to do that for Control, Lock, Delete, do a few episodes. I mean, it's the early episodes are terrible. I was on Skype not knowing what I was doing. And I'm on 300 plus episodes now. And it accidentally turned into a job and I make money from it. And I would say it's my main wow. income stream now. It just really struck me because in your book here, you, you talk about doing things that may be uncertain in the outcome of them and you, t- you take it. And, and that was ve- that's very much an embodiment of that. Just taking a chance, exploring it and going with it seems to be uh, incredibly productive. Well, also this book is a small book. It's a handbag sized, pocket sized book. And I do like to think take the pressure off myself. I think writing a big like Bible of thought is is not really what I'm about. I'm sort of throw it on the wall and see what sticks, which is what I did with the podcast that stuck. People don't see a lot of my projects that go wrong. Sometimes I get these flashbacks on Facebook memories that remind me of a project I tried to do two years ago that failed. I can see it, but no one else really sees that. So all of my projects are the ones that worked out. But I quite like the idea of just not committing yourself to something that you know has to succeed for you to pay your bills or X, Y, and Z. I've got my regular things that I know work. And then I can try new things and sort of be a bit risky. Yeah, I, I like working that way. I really think being a creative person can be really stressful if you think that everything has to be perfect and everything needs to be successful. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because <clears throat> almost, it seems to me what you're saying there, that being able to do other things comes from the certainty of having one thing that's working for you. You know, having the freedom to to take chances elsewhere because you know your income's well sorted. Because that was one of the things that struck me when I was going through. So your new book is called Disconnected. It's about sort of our relationships with our phones, but with also our relationships with other people, right? And one of the things that really struck me was that the importance of power, actually, in terms of freeing us from these things. So it's really intriguing that I think as you've seen your own online experience evolve, as you've been afforded more power and more success, you're more able to turn away from those things so you know whether it is you you articulate a few people who have out of office messages on and one of them the person says I'm on holiday and I'm deleting your message and if you want me get hold of me now for me this is very adjacent and it's brilliant what a power move is the way that we might celebrate it it's very adjacent to I heard Elon Musk say if a meeting's bad just get up and leave it it's like yeah no shit Elon you're the richest guy in the world. I'm sure you get the opportunity to do that. So I'm just really interested whether you perceive that a power element to this, that the more power we have, the better opportunity we have to navigate our digital world. Well, that example in the book is 
one of many and actually it's someone I know who puts that on who is a photographer who I know doesn't actually make that much money and it's someone saying do you know what I'm so inundated that I'm going on holiday with my girlfriend who I think had been ill and he was like I need a break I'm going to put this out of office on to say everything's being deleted because he was so burnt out and and miserable and even as a freelancer who's sort of trying to make ends meet. So I found that really interesting because I always thought of it as a status symbol as well. I always thought it was CEOs and high-powered corner offices saying, I don't have time for your email. I think this is a problem now for all of us, even if we are putting on WhatsApp an automated response saying, I can't join in the WhatsApp group tonight, guys. I'm taking a bath. You know, this is quite simple stuff, but I don't think we're doing it. And it was inspired a little bit by Oliver Berkman's book, uh, a particular page where he said that we have to take accountability for setting these boundaries. And this should be everyone's right. And we're seeing it, I think, in France, or was it Germany, that it's now illegal for your boss to text you after midnight or something. So I think this is a really big topic. And I wouldn't definitely wouldn't want this book to be targeting just a select group of people. I, I think it's for absolutely everyone. And I talk about some of my media friends that are like done with the internet, and done with Twitter, but that's, I hope, a small amount of the book. <laughs> and tell me, so, so go on, give me where you think we are. We're in, it's really interesting. You used the phrase at one point that the internet, when it's, it's most joyous, is like a fruit machine. Certainly my use of, of TikTok still now has got the joyful fruit machine. I really recognised it actually. You know, I worked for a long time at a, two different internet social media companies. And, you know, the joy when I first worked at those places was because it was like this new thing that was being invented around us. TikTok still has that for me. It still has the fruit machine years, years to it. But where do you see us being right now? Do you, do you see it as wholly negative or is it more complicated than that? I love that you love TikTok, by the way, because I think I said to you or or in general that I, I found it really overwhelming and you were like, no, try it. It's actually really good for tips or there's psychologists on there. Like it's not all just kids kind of messing around in like, I don't know, swimming pools, or whatever. I, do, I, have, I still don't go on it, so I don't know what it is. Um, I feel old. I'm an old millennial now, but I think it's, it's not really about good or bad. And it's not really about do this, do that. Like my book, I hope doesn't come across as like an advice book. I'm really over this sort of advice culture of everyone telling you what to do all the time. So for me, it's more, what's your relationship with your phone? Like, like what's your relationship like with your diet? What's your relationship like with exercise or are you becoming sober curious? Are you curious as to whether you're not going to eat meat anymore? These are just questions I think we're all grappling with, but I wanted to look at my phone. I wanted to look at the internet and I wanted to look at how different we all are. Like I have deleted LinkedIn recently. That was too much for me. I don't want to be on there. And my career has actually got better since leaving that platform that I've got nothing against LinkedIn, by the way, I'm probably going to go back on it in the future, but it's just looking at what you're doing. Does it Mm. serve you? is it good for you? There's a lot of people that have left Twitter because they realised they felt they had to be on there. I'm trying to take away or reflect even on the shoulds 
we feel like we should, we should, we should. Well, mm. do do you? Why, why don't you have a little play around and see what's not serving you? Yeah, I heard Cal Newport talking about similar things, you know, and he, he was talking about if you know specifically what you're aiming to get out of it. Well, I do, you know. For me, when I'm bored and filling time, I'm delighted that I've brought Duolingo into my life. And I, I do a quick Duolingo session. And I'm astonished that I actually get some escape from doing that but separately tiktok's the other one and it makes me so happy to use it that you know some of the angst you get from witnessing either performative displays on other platforms or or anger on other platforms you said something that i really liked which was was really interesting i'd love to you to explain how this came about the more opinions you realized you realized this that the more opinions you were having the more miserable you were becoming that was a really interesting thing i was reflecting on that thinking it's, it's, it's really strange, isn't it? We find people who've got resolute opinions. You know, I, 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 I spend all my time admiring people who in the adjacent area to what I work in have got these really determined opinions. It's like, I'm a, like, astonished at how resolute they can be. I'm, I'm drawn to it, but then absolutely, like you say, it is exhausting. What, what made you reach that conclusion? Well, I think in wider culture, we do need these people who are cemented in their opinion because it just gives us a springboard to bounce against, even though obviously I would love it if Piers Morgan or whoever, whoever's used as that example of being annoying on Twitter and actually saying some really damaging things sometimes. Uh, I think people like him kind of need to exist because we need to know sometimes what our own opinions are. I think... Yeah, I worked that out that I was trying to have an opinion on absolutely everything and I just exhausted myself. And I think mainly <laughs> the biggest like spiritual breakthrough you can ever have as a as a person is just getting tired of your own bullshit, basically. Um, <laughs> so yes, okay, part of my job is to, I'm not really a journalist anymore, but ha- have opinions. I guess that is part of my job. But sometimes I just don't know and sometimes I don't care and sometimes I'm not sure. And I think it's leaning into that, leaning into that murkiness a bit more, not being afraid that you don't have the answer, not being afraid that you don't know anything. I did an amazing episode actually on Control-Alt-Delete with Tom Chatfield, who really has such a good case for living in that grey area and just saying you don't know. I mean, it's quite arrogant to think we do know stuff. We're obviously in the middle of the pandemic still. And the amount of people that scramble around to say they definitely know what's going on. It's like, just admit you don't. It's okay. So let's, let's go through some of the different platforms. Because I'm really intrigued with what you said about LinkedIn there. So talk to me about your relationship with Instagram or with, with Twitter or YouTube. You know, and I'd love to know the things you see as good. I'd love to know the things you see as bad. What, what are the things that you're unsure about? Well, again, I don't believe in good and bad. I do think they're all, they've all got their purpose. But for me, I'm very, I've always been very conscious about what I do and how I decide to use social media. I mean, I guess it was sort of my job for a long time to be strategic on behalf of other people. So I do, I, I don't overthink it, but I do, I do think about it a lot. I, I, I can't tell you the amount of times people said, get on YouTube. YouTube's just, you know, growing and you've got your podcast. So you must go on YouTube. I don't want to. I, I don't like the, I don't like being on there. I like watching stuff on there. So I think it's about self-reflection, which is what my book is trying to do. It's like prompting people to reflect. So Twitter, I've got to say, I'll always have a love affair with Twitter because there are loads of writers on there and I'm a writer and I do have things that I want to test out. You know, my novel Olive came from me putting a tweet out there and re- realizing there was something behind it. So that is a creative space for me. 
obviously you need to mute the constant news if you're not in the mood for that. And Instagram, I've got a really interesting relationship with it now where I have two Instagram accounts. I've got my public career one where I talk about work, talk about careers, talk about kind of self-improvement topics, I suppose, well-being, lifestyle, my books. Um, And then I've got a private Instagram with 100 people on it, all of which are sort of coming to my wedding, very, very close family and friends. It's really interesting how differently I use them and how unguarded I am in the one with my friends and family, I suppose. What sort of, what you just being honest or the photographs you post, describe to me the differences. Just not overthinking it, just posting my Christmas tree the other day. It's not the best Christmas tree. Don't have many decorations on it. It's actually a bit sad looking, if I'm being honest. It's not (laughs) beautiful, but it's just quite cute. So I posted that. Um, I'm redoing my house at the moment. Bit of a, you know, um, what's the word when you're doing up your house? Reno content, I think they call it. Um, Okay. Yeah, just stuff like that. Just just posting whatever I feel like, whenever. And if I get one like, who cares, you know? Is, Is this all a reflection then? I mean, a, a lot of it's about identity, right? A lot of it is about um, the burden of servicing a public identity ex- eventually proves exhausting for us. And, you know, in, in that wonderful book, Trick Mirror, Gia Tolentino says that, you know, the biggest thing that Facebook ever did was tell us that, teach us that we needed to have a highly functioning public avatar. You know, we, we needed to service our digital identities. And I guess what you seem to be saying is that servicing that public identity is exhausting and maybe leaves us in a place where we either don't like that identity or we feel we, we feel conflicts within it. Is, is that your take? Yes, and I'm trying to not just talk about what it's like having eyeballs on you Maybe you don't have a private Instagram if you wouldn't have a professional account, but I think we're seeing it across the board. Even if you have a Facebook page, you you have some sort of weird personal brand going on. Even if you have a business page that's not you, that's quite confusing, I think, for an individual to be sort of touting their wares and also trying to show themselves as being a human being. So for me, it works having two, but for someone else, it won't. I really wanted to share my thoughts about how I use the internet, what makes me happy, what brings me joy, how I do my kind of Marie Kondo clean out, how I think about my digital hygiene or whatever we call it, and just get people thinking. Because I think at the moment we've got all these documentaries coming out, like The Social Dilemma came out and that David Baddiel documentary on the BBC has just come out. And it's very scaremongery and that's fine. We do know that our data is being harvested. We do know that technology is rapidly increasing but I just wanted to write a book that was like okay if you're just a person living at home what are these little mindfulness Mm. little sound bites to help us be happy again basically and it's providing cues and stimulus to do those things because I don't want it to be do it my way is what I'm saying yeah yeah. the interesting thing on that David Baddiel documentary for me was that the format was such that actually the nuance and the and the complexity of this was somewhat buried so if you've if you watch that he he tweeted at one stage he tweeted about his father being unwell and he said and he got what he styled as he got all the quiet people responding to him saying lovely things now that is really intriguing for me because you know you're saying these there is some digital hug in the affection of strangers and yet it was all buried under sort of these 
headlines, you know, the guy who said this is an apocalypse of bots and manipulation. As someone who worked for a long time in social media and who knows the things that are wrong with social media very, very intently, that guy was just a total misdirection. So it's really intriguing for me that there's a more complex documentary there that he could have really leaned into that affection of strangers and really sort of said, you know, are there ways to tackle this? And he kind of didn't. And that's the sadness for me that, you know, it was like this big high impact hour and it could have been something far more sophisticated. That that was my take. I, I definitely finished watching it feeling more anxious. Uh, maybe that was the point. I don't know. Mm. But I don't really want to be in that spiral of anxiety about it. I, I kind of want to change my life and take some accountability of how I use the tool. Because sometimes we talk about the internet or social media like it's this living, breathing being. But actually, it's just us on there. I thought the interesting bit, what he was saying, and I think I touched on it a little bit in my book, was the fight or flight response that we get for when we're triggered by horrible things online. Mm. You know, I've definitely read something troll based about myself and then gone into a weird spiral where I like sort of become quite mean to my husband. (laughs) It's like, it's not, he hasn't done anything. Is it that we just don't know where to put our aggression and anger sometimes? And I think that's interesting to me. Like, is our behavior on the internet impacting our real life relationships? That's the heart of my book really is how do we become more human, i.e. lean into our kindness, our empathy, our curiosity, our listening, because all that stuff I feel is kind of getting eroded away a little bit. Yeah. And look, you know, and what you do throughout is provide stimulus and prompts and questions. Um, you, you talk at one stage, you mention a diary, a journal that you've, you use, and you've also just published your own journal. So like the, the similar thing. So firstly, can you talk me through the role that effectively it's similar to what your book's doing, really providing these stimulus, these prompts, these provocations. How do you use that journal and what made you make one of your own? Well, the relationship between using my phone and getting into that anxiety spiral and this doom scrolling is at odds with my creativity. I mean, I how I couldn't have written my novel. I wrote my novel before the pandemic and I really have struggled with my creativity since we've all been behind screens and not and our days have changed. Like I wake up and my day is so unmoored now because I don't have my meetings that I used to have or I don't have my cafe that I used to go to. So it was how do we become creative again? And for me, writing by hand has always stimulated things that typing hasn't. I think there's there's something there's some research out there about how your hand is connected to your brain in a different way it's flowing with a pen but I just find that getting off the internet just for a bit I've actually got you can't see because it's a podcast but I've got this um sand timer on my desk and I just put that over for 15 minutes and journal and then go back online and I just feel like a different person again journaling's always been really really important for me and I think what freaked me out is that I just wasn't being present how can you be present when you're constantly scrolling? My memories were becoming really faded. I, uh, and I have read somewhere that if you're taking photos all day or you're scrolling all day or you're, or you're going about your day, but your phone is in your hand and you're kind of living through it, your, your memories of that day will be less strong. So on the days that I'm journaling, going for the walk, getting off my phone, I just, I remember that day more clearly. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, like one of the challenges we've got is that because our phones are this incredible bundle of so many different things, we find ourselves bringing them along. For me, I bring it along for the camera because I, you know, I adore looking back at old photographs. I love capturing moments. So I bring my phone for the camera. And actually, if there was an opportunity to bring 
a camera that size and not have all of the other functions. I'd probably do that more often, but it's we've got this sort of brilliant device, this sort of Swiss army knife of a device. And yeah. the very fact that it can do so many things so well means that it brings this distraction engine out with us at times when we probably don't need it. Exactly. And that's the thing, because there's I think the time is 15 minutes. It takes you 15 minutes to get back into the thing you were doing if you check your phone, which is a long time, 15 minutes to get yourself back into the thing you were just doing when you just check your phone quickly. That's why my relationship with my notifications has changed so much. It's all very well if someone's ringing me urgently and that interrupts my writing. That's okay. I can deal with that. But sometimes I'm writing and I'll get a ping and it will be like, I don't know, my cousin texting me about buying a piece of furniture off me or something. Like it's, it's so something that could have waited till the next week that I'm just so frustrated. And I think the frustration is really what prompted the book is I was just getting annoyed with myself. And I know I'm not alone because I ran a competition to win a copy the other day. And I, I asked people to comment below what's their intention for next year with changing how they use their phone. And the comments are so interesting. I feel like this is on the top of everyone's minds at the moment. How can I go into the following year and actually do my hobbies get fit, try a new career, write the novel. Like these are things that bring us so much joy. And I do think our phones are getting in the way, but we're getting in the way, really. When you look at younger people, so you, I think you might describe yourself as a geriatric millennial. Forgive me if that's not the word you use. But uh, when you look at younger people, do you think their relationship with their phones is different, better, worse? I actually have no idea. And I, I find that question difficult to answer because I get a lot of parents coming up to me at events saying what do I do about my kids and they're on their phones all the time I don't know if it's a positive thing like I learned how to code on MySpace and now my job is to be really well I don't know if I still am up to date with the latest stuff but a lot of what I discovered on my phone when I was young has actually impacted my career and built a successful business so I think parents are finding it difficult to know are my kids learning some really interesting skills how to video and edit and upload a TikTok you know that could actually be something really useful in the future versus how much of it is kind of numbing out and not really doing anything and harming their social skills and stuff, stuff like that. So I don't know. And I'm finding it interesting how the gap is widening be- between the generations. I always thought, well, I grew up on the internet. I'm young-ish. I'm going to understand my nieces and nephews. And I'm not sure I do. So maybe that's a future project to get under the skin of that a little bit more because I don't, I don't really know. There was a couple of really interesting bits. I, I chatted to some school teachers recently and they were telling me how kids at their school were using TikTok to effectively create TV viewing style discussions. So they were saying to each other, have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? And it was the, in the same way that we might have talked about a TV show that was on the night before. They were using it as a way to sort of connect with each other. And Interesting, in a world where we don't watch the same shows anymore, TikToks are short enough that you can go and talk to someone and have a moment of relatedness. So it was just in- interesting for me to, to see how similar behaviours were adapting to new technologies. Yes, yes. I actually saw something the other day about teenagers now on Snapchat. Apparently, it's a new thing that someone can see your typing. You'll get you'll get alerted if someone's right. typing, and apparently, you don't you don't actually send the message. It's just typing means you're thinking of them. And so I thought that's very niche and very very interesting. But do you know what? I really don't want to sound old. Like I'm 32, and I think sometimes when I say, "Oh, I just wish," you know. They could put down their phones and go and read a book and light a candle and be with the, be with themselves and be with their own thoughts. Sit still. I'm like, I sound 80. 
<laughs> but that's sort of how I feel. Just just finish for me, sort of, on the this book. What provokes you then to to write it? So it was just a reflecting on these, the complexity of these issues, reflecting on the challenges of these issues. Well, it was after seeing the social dilemma. First of all, I was like, that documentary just left us hanging. I think someone needs to write a book with some practical stuff in because you know I interview right. a lot of people in the book, right. and it's not just me. It's psychologists and things just being like, well, what can we do to kind of get ourselves back, or what can we do to be creative again, or fight back against the algorithm, or spot if we're being targeted by an advert when it's very sort of under the radar, you know, just in general. So that was one thing. I would have loved a book like this, just something to get right. you back into the right. the mode. I love Julia Cameron and she's all about practical prompts. It's like her thing of how to get yourself back into writing. So, you know, I sort of take inspiration from her, but also I, I very much look at what's going on on Twitter from a bird's eye view, for example, what's going on in the news, what studies are coming out, what research is saying, like one in four Gen Z at the moment are upset when they see friends because their friends are just sat on their phones and don't listen to them. We're booking our holidays because they're Instagrammable. We are falling out with people more than ever online because our body language and our social cues aren't there. But also anecdotally, my friends and my friends of friends are just so bored of social media and they just want to log off. They want to cut down on their time. So I think it's across the board. One of the things you talk about is you seem inclined towards removing the anonymity of the internet, whether we should get rid of the anonymous people. And as someone who's worked for a long time with those things, I'm I'm convinced that's a false panacea, basically. And actually it comes with a lot of privilege of living in a fairly functioning democracy. Mm. I was just really intrigued how you got there or how resolute you were in that belief, really. Well, it's interesting because I don't actually know fully what I think about that. What I did in the book was I did a checklist of things that people wanted and on there was anonymity. People, I think I did like a little study of people who 10 years ago, want what would they like from 10 years ago from the internet? And then one of them was, what would you like to be removed from the internet? And people obviously said bots. They said annoying targeted and ads. They said taking my data without making it really obvious. And then the other one was anonymity. So I touch on it, but I don't go into it very much. But I I know what you mean. It is a privilege. I mean, I went to a book festival in Sharjah a few years ago where I did a talk about my book and about empowerment for women. And it was in front of a classroom of girls who had been segregated in the classroom from the boys and learned different things at school and didn't learn as much as the boys at school. So I'm sat there talking about how I empower myself. I mean, how can I sort of connect on the same level there? I, I, I can't. Obviously, everything is sort of has to be relative to the audience that's reading it. But yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, and these things are immensely complex. Uh, I got the sense that you weren't um, stridently saying that, but more that it was a reflection of a consideration. I can understand it, really. You know. Yeah, I mean, on the on the whole, I do believe though that, and this might be a privileged thing, but I feel like I have nothing to hide. I could show you everything I've googled today, and I wouldn't really be embarrassed by it. Maybe that's coming from a place of I wouldn't mind everyone seeing what I'm up to. But of course we deserve privacy. I just feel like if I if someone does something wrong, they should be held to account. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not I'm not fully convinced that removing anonymity would do that. Personally, as someone who's worked in these tech firms, I think if anyone knew how little resource was put into keeping users safe, then that would change the debate. And actually, it suits tech firms very well to have this debate about anonymity because it makes them look like they're out of control, like it's 
it's something that something that they just can't solve, and maybe like you know someone needs to intervene with these things. Whereas in fact, if if people knew that you know there was a five-a-side football team in Hungary dealing with bad comments every time that you log in, you'd think, okay, well, number one, why are they not in the UK dealing with them? Number two, why is it such a small number? It would change the debate. So my view is that the tech firms should, number one, have to publish how many people they've got working on it. And those things should be public data because it immediately, as soon as you've got numbers, it immediately changes the discussion. But I hear you, these things are immensely complex. But that's super interesting. And obviously you having been in those rooms and in those conversations over the over the years, it's so interesting hearing your point of view on that because you're so right. When when the headlines are just on the user, then the platforms are kind of getting away with not really addressing it. I think in the book I do talk about as well, like do we need an internet police? And that bit with Laura Bates about how the amount of abuse she got and nothing was done. So it's like a system that needs to change, not just individual users necessarily. But broadly, you seem quite optimistic about where the internet is. Like, it's not, it's not like, as in you've got like a mature perspective on it, but you still, even when you talk about now, you're still enthusiastic about most of the platforms if they're used well. Would you say that that's the case? Oh my God, definitely. Definitely. I, but this is the thing. I love my phone and I love the internet. I have written this book from a place of I've sorted myself out with it. So I wanted to share where I'm at with it because yeah. it has been my job. I have to, I've had to be on there 24-7 at times for my job, as we all do sometimes. But I've really looked at my relationship with it. I feel like I've got a really healthy relationship with it now. It fits into my life really well. I'm not going to be someone that just logs off and goes and lives in the woods. Like I love this stuff. So I feel optimistic. I feel like we're seeing the truth of a few things that were hidden for a long time with some of the tech companies. We are finding out more about our own behaviours and habits. We're talking way more about mental health. And we're starting to just talk more about this tool that for so long has remained almost invisible because it was just life. It's just the air we breathe. Of course, we're on our phones. I'm just happy that we're going to the next level with some of these conversations. Tell me just a little bit about you and projects you work on and things like that. So you had a novel come out uh, just before the pandemic, didn't it? Or did it come out just around when the pandemic was starting? Olive, when did it come out? I wrote it in 2019 and it was supposed to come out earlier in 2020 than it did. The publication date moved to July, I think it was in the end. So yeah, it came out right in the middle of the pandemic. It also came out in the middle of Black Lives Matter and I found it sort of... You know, I did. I, did, I didn't really want to talk about the book that much actually during that summer. There was so much going on and I kind of wanted to just be very quiet on the internet during that time and just read and take things in and follow. So that was a very odd summer and I don't think anyone was really promoting much you know people read it which was lovely and then the paperback came out this year which sort of you know brought the book to even more readers so that was great I think a lot of us as content creators we're just really learning about when to speak and when not to speak as well did your publisher when you told them you wanted to write a novel did they question you or because it's interesting right you've got this this one persona this identity as as a commentator on culture and a sort of this podcaster who chats to all these incredible people and then writing a novel might seem like a switch of lanes did did your publisher try and push you back into your lane or how does that work no I mean my agent actually who is also a very good friend she years ago said I hope you're going to write a novel one day this was years oh, ago. Okay. And I think she planted the seed because I sort of messed around with short stories and a bit of fiction over the years. And I, you know, like for fun. Yeah, she planted the seed. And then I think in 2018, I sent her something and said, 
actually, that's a good idea. (laughs) So it sort of came from that. And I think all things do come from someone believing in you, someone seeing you, because I was never going to be that person in a suit. I remember being picked for that Management Today lineup, which was amazing. And I'm very, very pleased. But I'm like in a a suit, like doing a power woman pose. I was like, this is so not me. (laughs) So I think I was going almost too much down that route. I would not call myself a business author anymore at all. I think I'm someone that is interested and curious about lots of themes. I had written the multi-hyphen method. So I was like, no one can question me now. I can do whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) That was your alibi. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, it, you know, the book went well received. You got to see it in bookshops. And will you will you write another novel or what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I'm working on one at the moment. I'm really excited about it now. I've turned a corner on it. It's been hard, but at the same time, I think it's taken a year to, to get to this point where I'm feeling good about it. But I, I really think fiction writing is a completely different beast. It does take a long time. I, I was talking to an architect friend the other day and she was like, some buildings take a year, some buildings take five years. Like you're building something. So just go easy on yourself. So yeah, um, that's going to be out in twenty. 23 though i already know that so that's exciting that's very good what's it tw- okay 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 so so not next year but the year after and just finally sort of you know f- fantasy podcast guests i guess you've had such a stellar lineup of people who would be your dream podcast guest to come on control or delete oh my god that's such a good question and i do feel really lucky that most people i think of i email them and they normally say yes which i can't actually believe it's got to that point um i nearly interviewed oprah once and it didn't happen and she's just she's everything (laughs) so if I could get 10 minutes with Oprah that would be amazing I once sat next to Oprah in a restaurant a very unflashy restaurant in Victoria and um the person I was there with I I sort of opened my eyes wide to signal in a cool sense oh look 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 and then I sort of did little eye flicks uh, I think I even tried to po- point with my tongue and uh and <laughs> and the, when I left the restaurant I said I can't believe Oprah was there and the person I was with said oh what didn't see it, it totally missed it but <gasps> I sat next oh to my God. I sat next to Oprah I thought you were going to tell Michelle Obama actually Michelle Obama's on there I actually wouldn't I would love to interview Meghan Markle yeah. as well I also would love to interview anyone who isn't really on social media, like someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who just doesn't really, you know, we don't really get any access to her. So people like that are so much fun to interview. There's a real art, isn't there? Sort of those people are able to keep themselves completely off it. And and I wonder if she does use it, you know, in a sort of Michaela Cole sense that she was watching what goes on, but doesn't really post, I don't know, intriguing. It is, it's funny. And I, you must see that, must have seen this a lot at Twitter, but there's this weird assumption where people think if you're slightly famous or, or a lot famous that you don't mm. read anything mm. but I think they all yeah. read it I think I think if you're a human being with a phone you can have a little look yeah absolutely it's what, <laughs> what destroyed Ed Sheeran in it that's why <laughs> he knows? doesn't have a phone yeah he needs to write he needs to write a, a book about disconnecting yeah. god yeah <laughs> but again it comes down to a lot of privilege and power like very fortunate to not have a phone I was arranging some Christmas drinks and one of my mates wasn't on whatsapp and it just struck me as just this most extraordinary life decision. You know, like my main relationship with my mum's on WhatsApp. How can you not be on WhatsApp? Yeah, but I, I really hear you. And I actually think I say this at some point in the book that logging off forever to chant, to chant in a hut wearing like a toga or whatever these tech <laughs> tech founders do now is 
so privileged and I just most of mm. us cannot log off like we would love to but we can't and and when you see you know a, a frazzled parent on their phone on the tube I'm not thinking oh that person's on their phone I'm thinking they're probably doing the weekly shop they're probably booking the babysitter mm. they're probably you know doing a million different admin tasks on the phone so we need it we really need it so if anyone's sitting there today thinking like exactly as you said I'm now in the zone where I want to renegotiate my relationship with my phone I want to re-reflect on it I think you know this is the delight of disconnected you've reflected on those questions and don't necessarily come out with a strident set of opinions but you pose the provocations that might help reach that that conclusion so a book to make us better in 2022 thank, you. thank so. you so much for coming on and talking i'm always grateful to chat to you thank you so much bruce oi oi there you have it thank you so much to emma for joining me like i say dazzlingly successful and i think the, the reason why probably this book will go on to be a great success too is she's just got a a good way of summarising what a lot of people are reflecting on and thinking about right now. So that's Disconnected by Emma Gannon. You can get a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening today. There's a lot of great stuff coming up at the start of the new year. I think, you know, a lot of us are reflecting back on the return to work and the return to offices, how work culture is going to take shape because it seems like uncertainty and dealing with complexity is going to remain certainly in the medium term so uh, lots to come back to there i'm so grateful for you spending time to listen uh, i'm bruce Aisley. thank you for listening see you next time normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 